Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, December 5th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Civil War historians John F. Marzalek, Craig L. Simons, and Harold Holzer discuss the battlefield encounters between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. And now, enjoy the podcast. Good evening. Um, we're delighted to see you again as we uh, go back in time a century and a half uh, to look at another aspect of the Civil War we've yet to cover in our many uh, sessions with you. Um, tonight we're going, to, going right to the top. We're going to explore the personalities, achievements, and maybe some failures of the two commanding generals whose... Uh, rivalry, competition, maybe even a little contempt for each other, marked the final battles of the war and the surrender that all but ended it. And they are, of course, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. And boy, have these two characters ever been in the news lately. Uh, Perfect timing. We could not have chosen a better moment As we know, Lee has been all but knocked off his pedestal, literally, (laughs) in some parts of the country, um, in this roiling national controversy over Confederate memorials. Um, Things look better for General Grant. And for one thing, our friend Ron Chernow has uh, published his extraordinary biography of Grant, and he is back in the news. And for another uh, very important thing... um, our friend John Marzalek has just published uh, an annotated and re-edited volume of Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, which we will talk about as we go along. And it is another triumph for anybody who wants to read one of the great wartime autobiographies in American history and also in an accessible volume that really gives us notes that help us through the... So congratulations to, to you. And just one more shout-out. Uh, for John and his wife, Jean, who is here today. Um, They, and I'm giving Jean at least half credit for this, have just opened the new Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library Complex at Mississippi State University, where John has taught. And having just come back from there, I can tell you that it is absolutely spectacular and uh, just beautiful to look at, wonderful to access, And uh, thanks to John, Grant is winning the war all over again. So (laughs) let's go back and talk about these these fellows. Um, Totally different upbringings, of course, but both had difficult fathers. So I thought we'd start there, and uh, I guess we'll start with Grant. Tell us a little bit about the upbringing and and Dad. Grant had the misfortune, I guess you could say, of, of having a father... Um, who was completely different uh, from him in that he believed that even from the earliest time that somehow 
he should be the, one of the most important people in the country. And the result was that over time, uh, the father, Jesse, would do and say things to try to build up the son, even though he thought the son was a complete loser. Ulysses S. Grant was, was an absolute, uh, absolute loser. Uh, but what, what happens is, the interesting thing is, is that Grant's father uh, is a writer. He's, uh, he's interested in politics. He's interested in all sorts of things. And he's a very outgoing sort of an individual, whereas Grant takes after his mother. His mother's very quiet. We know very little about her because Grant doesn't say much about her. But one of my favorite stories about them is uh, when Grant writes a letter to his father and basically says, leave me alone. Let me fight this war. You keep sending me people to promote, to give jobs to, the later as president, to be made postmaster. Just stop it. I'm not going to put up with it any longer. So that was the kind of relationship they had, even though uh, Grant's father gave him a job just before the war started when Grant was not doing very well financially. But generally speaking, their relationship was horrible. How about you're going to take the mantle of Robert E. Lee? Well, I guess I am. That's my role here tonight. Um, Yeah, I was looking at this photograph of Lee here. This one was taken in 1863, roughly the same summer as the Battle of Gettysburg when Lee was at his prime. And he became, as a result, partly of that image and the image he portrayed during the Civil War as the Marble Man, as Thomas Connolly called him, uh, an icon for the South. And I think... Lee kept that tight rein on himself and that stern visage we associate with his looks and appearance, largely because of his father. His father was Light Horse Harry Lee, a dashing cavalryman of the American Revolution. Uh, But what makes a dashing cavalryman often makes a very poor civilian. Uh, Light Horse Harry was a scandal in Virginia. Uh, One of his recent biographers, Michael Corder, called him a well-bred crook. It's not going much too far to say he was Virginia's Bernie Madoff. I'll tell one quick story about that, and that is that uh, Lee showed up, Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee's father. Uh, Of course, the Lees were famous already in Virginia, well-known family, but he showed up, uh, knocked on a neighbor's door and said, "Uh, my horse has run off, I need to borrow a horse to get home. So the man lent him a horse and and also said, I'm going to send a slave along with him and to bring the horse back after you arrive at your home. Well, days pass with no news of the man, the slave, or the horse. And finally, the slave showed up about a week later, rather bedraggled looking, and said, well, what happened? The master said, what happened? And he said, well, it turns out uh, Colonel Lee's horse did not run off. He sold him. And when he got home, he sold your horse, too. And he said, well, why are you so late in coming home? I said, well, he sold me too. <laughs> um, so this, this reputation of being a virtual scoundrel was an incubus that Robert E. Lee carried with him all his life. And I think he spent much of his life trying to be that marble man, that stern, impeccable uh, West Point graduate who never got a single demerit, partly to overcome the burden of having a father like Light Horse Harry. Maybe I just just add uh, to uh, something about Grant and his father. When Grant was a little boy, and really throughout his life, he's a great horseman. So he he really knows that this neighbor has a horse that Ulysses Grant really wants. 
And his father says, no, the guy's asking too much for it. So, but I'll tell you what, he wears him out. Grant wears this guy out, that wears his father out. And so the father says, here's what you do. Offer him $15 for the horse. If he doesn't want to take it, offer him $20 for the horse. And if he still doesn't take it, go up to 25 Well, Grant goes to see this man and says, my father says that I'm supposed to offer you $25 for the horse. Will you take it? I'd be happy to. And Grant never outlived that. And his father said, what a fool I have for a son. So they're succeeding despite their fathers. Yeah. Let, let's take them to, uh, they both go to West Point for different reasons, I suppose. Lee, because it's expected, military tradition of his family. Grant, because his father doesn't want to pay for pay college. Off. That's right. And if he can get him appointed, he gets a free education. And maybe he'll learn something useful like engineering or mathematics, which is what he was interested in. But tell us about their careers at the academy. Um, Let's start with Lee this time. Okay. Robert E. Lee, class of 1829 at West Point, showed up and was the model cadet during uh, plebe summer. Uh, Then throughout his entire year, he was was, uh, anointed first captain of of the Corps, uh, therefore the highest military ranking, uh, finished second academically. And everyone always asks, well, who was first? Right. Yeah. A guy named Charles Mason, who ended up being nobody, no, really, and lived a life of obscurity. Army, right? He didn't stay. Yeah. Did not stay in the Army. As most people did not, in fact, in the 19th century. He went to West Point to get a free education, in many cases. Uh, get training in engineering. Many went to work for railroads or banks. You could get more money doing that. And it was really rare to stay in the Army after you graduated. Lee was one of those who did. Not only did he have this mythical record of almost perfect everything, never got a single demerit. There's actually a book, the West Point Library, and each page dedicated to a cadet, and it's just filled with, you know, late for muster and all these other things listed. And then uh, um, Lee's, you turn to Robert E. Lee's page, and it's blank, absolutely blank. Four years, never late for anything, always perfect, uh, and then stayed in through all those doldrum years after graduation, all the way through, and rose to the rank of brevet colonel after 40-some years in the Army. So he plugged away at it. Yeah. What, a, what about Grant in, uh, at West Point, John? Well, Grant had no desire to be a soldier, no desire to be at West Point. In fact, uh, in his memoirs, he talks about how he comes home one day and his father has worked a deal with a congressman with whom he isn't even talking, but they work out a deal to get Grant into West Point. And Grant and, he, and his father tells him this. And uh, Grant says, well, I'm, I'm not going. I don't want to go. And the father says, yes, you're going, for the reason that, uh, that Craig uh, uh, mentioned. But the, what, what, what uh, Grant actually then, then said, he said, well, my father said, in his memoirs, my father said I'm going, so I guess I must have to go. So he goes very reluctantly except he's happy about the fact he's going to be able to travel. He's going to be able to see parts of the United States he never saw before. So he gets there, and you've heard the famous story. His real name was Hiram Ulysses Grant. And take those first three letters, H-U-G. Imagine going to any college with your nickname being Hug. And that's what Grant, uh, Grant has. But he shows up. And the sergeant or the officer of the day, whoever he was, uh, 
looks at the look, goes through his papers and says, uh, well, you're Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant said, no, I'm not. I'm Hiram Ulysses Grant. Well, the paper here says you are Ulysses S. Grant. Turns out the congressman knew that everybody called him Ulysses, and he knew his mother's maiden name was Simpson. So he said, well, must be Ulysses S. Grant. So he gives him, gives him this name, and this sergeant or officer of the day, whoever he is, basically says, well, you know, what we have is Ulysses Grant. You're Hiram Ulysses Grant. You're saying you're not that guy. Well, if that's true, go back home, come back another year with the right name. So he said, well, knowing what his father would think, he decides not to go back. And he accepts the name. And yet the first three years or so, he continues to use Hiram Ulysses or Ulysses Hiram uh, Grant. And the interesting thing is he's, he's a mediocre student. He's not as bad a student as has been indicated sometimes. He's actually a pretty good student. He's really good in math. He wants to become an assistant uh, uh, professor uh, of math. And so, so he's not really all that bad. But he only reads through his lessons once because he hates them. He thinks it's a waste of time, spends most of his time reading novels. And there are no novels at the library in West Point. So he and others form a clique or a group, and they order books, and they they exchange them. But when Grant leaves West Point, he's about the middle of the class. And as he leaves, he gets a position in a unit outside St. Louis. And we'll talk about what happens there, one of the major turning points in his life when he meets a certain young lady there. What I was always astonished by in terms of Grant's service at West Point is his artistic ability. He was a pretty good painter. Yes. And draftsman. He did some really interesting landscapes and um, animal studies, a little side of him that most people don't don't realize. And um, just parenthetically, before we get to their first big wartime experience, uh, Grant served some time after the academy in upstate New York, mm-hmm. way upstate New York. And Lee served some time in Brooklyn, Fort Hamilton. Um, in fact, some of you may remember that uh, a tree, a, actually a replacement tree, a tree that replaced a tree that he had planted mm. in Brooklyn was recently removed as part of the perhaps overzealous effort to remove anything associated with Lee and the plaque that said Robert E. Lee planted a tree here, which is sort of a, a fact. But anyway, I just thought I would throw in our little Brooklyn association with, with, with Lee. So obviously the big thing for the cadets of that era was the Mexican War. And I'm going to show you they will not look like themselves, but here are these two guys. That is Lee, who some people said was the handsomest man in America on the left, and Ulysses Grant, who was not the handsomest man in America, on the right. So tell us, I want to get to their wartime service because it sort of sets them up. And um, I've always liked the fact that I'll do, I'll do my part because it's image-related. Grant had two models in Mexico. His, the two big commanders were Winfield Scott, who is perhaps the most overdressed and overformal general in the army whom he admired, he admired very, much. very much and Zachary Taylor old rough and ready i think um on whom grant modeled himself but 
let's start with um, let's start with uh, with Lee this time. Lee in the Mexican War. He had an interesting career. In Lee had a great there. career during the Mexican War. You could argue that Lee, uh, of all of Grant's staff officers, Lee was probably the one who made the greatest contribution to uh, American success in that campaign. And I, I do want to remind everyone that this campaign, the one that began at Veracruz, now there was a campaign from the north, Zachary Taylor actually invaded across the Rio Grande early in the war, but when that proved not to be decisive, the United States launched an amphibious landing at Veracruz on the Gulf Coast. 10,000 men, the largest amphibious operation in history to that time, marched all the way in onto Mexico City and conquered an empire at the point of a cannon. It's a remarkable campaign. Wintered over in the mountains, and Winfield Scott conducted that, one of the great campaigns of American military history. And it was possible at all, in part, uh, because of the contributions of Robert E. Lee. He was a, a mere lieutenant and then captain, brevet captain, uh, but Lee volunteered on several occasions to find out in this road through the mountains where the enemy was and would ride out either by himself or with a single guide. At one point, he went so far and the guide said, I'm not going any further. I, it's too dangerous. And Lee went on by himself, crossing this lava-encrusted plain called the Pedregal uh, to find the location of the enemy forces and find a road that would outflank them which allowed Scott to win his big victory at Cerro Gordo and elsewhere on this campaign. So at the end of that war, Scott wrote in his uh, after-action report that this was the, the most brilliant young officer in the Army. So as he had been at West Point, the untouchable, the brilliant, the iconic Robert E. Lee, so too in the Mexican War was he the man to watch. I guess what I like about Grant at this period, and John, you could elaborate on this, is that he sees what we only came to see later, that it was an ill-advised, uh, nasty adventure in Mexico. But tell us about Grant and his yep. military and also his conscience-struck reaction to that. Yeah, Grant's war. reaction to the Mexican War is completely negative. He believes it, it is absolutely a mistake. It's something the United States should not have done, uh, the way it was handled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And keep in mind, too, that Grant is anti-slavery. His father is an anti-slaveryite. And this mythology, I just got a phone call just two days ago, I was telling Harold from somebody who told me that Grant had eight families of slaves. That's simply not close to accurate. Grant had one slave and he freed him for nothing at a time when, it, 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 when it, he could have used the money if he had sold him. But Grant in the Mexican War, Grant is a quartermaster. And he hates the idea that he's a quartermaster because that means he's not on the, on the front lines. But stop and think how important that was for his later career uh, in the Civil War. We don't like to talk about logistics because it's boring, it's dull. But it, the, the general who does the best is the guy who can feed his army and make sure they have weapons and make sure they have bullets, etc. My favorite story, I suppose, two favorite stories about Grant in the Mexican War, the one episode where he carries, he and a couple of soldiers carry a cannon up into the belfry of a church, and they outflank the Mexican line and just blast them uh, uh, blast him across the, across the open area. Uh, his commanding officers, what a great idea, Grant, I'll send you another cannon. And Grant thinks to himself, we can't fit another cannon up there. 
But he's smart enough, and this is, again, very important later on, he's smart enough politically to say, thank you, Mr. Officer. We will certainly use the cannon to our best advantage. And, of course, he doesn't use it. But then, of course, in there's two other episodes where the one episode where he's, he is a, an, a, an officer, a quartermaster, a logistical officer, and he suddenly is swept up in the, in, in the American attack. And he says later, I didn't have the moral courage to stop moving forward because I knew as a quartermaster my job was in the rear. And then finally, the, the most dramatic episode is where some soldiers, the American soldiers, need ammunition, need some help. And Grant is a great horseman. So he figures out that he gets on a horse and holds on to the horn, so to speak, and you know, blankets himself the horse and just runs across the, the, the opening in various streets where the Mexicans are targeting, and he gets through. And he's a great hero. He's not nearly as well-known as, uh, as Robert E. Lee is, but he learns a lot, and he learns a lot particularly from Zachary Taylor. That's the guy that he models himself on. You know, I don't want to get ahead of the story, but I've always been amused by the fact that when the two meet again at Appomattox years later, uh, Grant says to Lee, I remember you well during from the Mexican War. You were so gallant and noticeable. Of course, you know, General, you may remember me there. And Lee says, no, I don't, I don't remember you. I don't know whether he was psyching him out or whether he was not really noticeable. That's what I let me just 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 add that that's a that's a great story. And it may be true, but it may not be true. Because Lee may have said that he remembered him, but you're right, I think. But not it, in the memoirs, which you just edited. No, no, it's they don't say that. But plug other, number two, by in, the way. Uh, yes, that's, but in other, in other places, but who knows? I mean, that's one yeah. of those things we'll not never Well, here's really a who knows story, and I've, I've always thought it was a, just, it sounds a little bit like a myth, but I'm going to ask Craig. So the story is that when war, the Civil War breaks out, or at least when secession occurs, <laughs> Old Winfield Scott, who is now in his 70s and can't really do much field command anymore. He's enormous, old. And um, Wait a minute now. Be careful with that word old. Old, you know, yeah, that's right. I think you're in better shape. He's than 71, so I mean. And he weighs on. 300 pounds and can't get on his get horse. On his horse. Well, he's got that part horse. is true. Yeah, right. that. <laughs> um, he goes to Lee and says, secession is at hand. Will you command the Union armies, and in the, the next couple of days, Lee writes his dramatic uh, statement that he can't raise his sword against his state. So do you think there was really a meeting? People also confuse it with a meeting with Lincoln, which I don't think ever happened. But, it, you know. It's true in spirit. Uh, Winfield Scott did not physically, personally, face-to-face offer that position to Robert E. Lee, but he did deputize an individual to sound Lee out mm-hmm. on the possibility of this. And it was, it was very clear, and I think accurate, at the time that Winfield Scott believed Robert Lee was the best officer mm-hmm. of his generation and the one he wanted to command a Union army in case of a crisis. And Lee had made it clear to everyone that whatever Virginia did was what he would do. The, the nation for Robert E. Lee, he'd taken an oath to the Constitution of the United States, as all officers did and still do, but in his mind for his entire life, Virginia was his country. And whatever Virginia would do, he would do. So he, he kind of... 
you know, turned away this idea, and Scott knew that if Virginia seceded, which, of course, eventually it did, that Lee would go with, with Virginia. So, but it is true that Scott wanted him to command. He had broached that notion to Lincoln, who was perfectly willing to accept Scott's advice. Lincoln, early in the war, of course, wanted to lean heavily on the professional soldiers. Lincoln knew what his strengths were and where they weren't and was was perfectly willing to accept Scott's advice, but it was not going to happen because Lee wasn't going to do it. I was just going to mention, mention too, I think just to add to what Craig has said, uh, we, 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 hear all, we always hear the story about Lee pacing up and down, and he did, trying to decide whether he should join the Union, should join, join the Confederacy. And I cannot remember where I, where I read this or where I learned this, but an actual fact, 40% or something in that range of officers in the American Army when the war came stayed with the Union. And even members of, of Lee's Forty percent of Southerners or forty percent of Virginians. Virginians okay. who were in the in the uh, Union I mean, the American Army stayed uh, with what became the uh, the Union Army. George Thomas probably most famous. Most, most famous yeah, one. exactly. So you you know you have that that kind of situation, and you also have a situation where numbers of relatives in Lee's own family stay. With the Union Army, so you have it's a it's a really intriguing case. Well, let me let me make a couple of comments about that. One is that yes, it's true that a significant number, and I don't know what the percentage. I'll accept John's forty percent of uh, of Southern-born American officers stayed by the flag. I will point out that a far larger percentage of Union naval officers stayed by the flag. You may deduct whatever information you like from that. But this business of pacing up and down, this comes from Douglas Southall Freeman. Douglas Southall Freeman wrote a four-volume biography of Robert E. Lee. It's as detailed as anybody would want. Each volume about 600 to 700 pages, published in the 1930s. It's what created, for that generation at least, and still, it's still Mm -hmm. in print, uh, the Marble Man, as Thomas Connolly called him, this, this iconic, perfect individual. And he has a chapter called The Decision He Was Born to Make. And it consists of supposedly people listening to Robert E. Lee's footsteps as he went back and forth in this room, making up his mind of what to do. Well, well, Freeman is dramatizing that event. Uh, I don't think there was ever a doubt in Lee's own mind about the decision he was going to make. He was going to go with Virginia. And elsewhere in Freeman's biography, that becomes very clear. So I think this is kind of Freeman... Gilding the lily a bit. And there's no source for it, obviously. But, uh, I, but I think, the, in fairness, too, when you talked about the Navy, more Navy people stayed. There really weren't many ships in the Confederacy, so they, you know. That's true. All right. For those of you who don't know, John was Army, I was Navy, yeah, so we had yeah. this thing. That... I was civilian, just in case anyone <laughs> is wondering. So, well, I'm going to advance the slides here so that we get to see, of course, the main thing they do in terms of their image, whether it's a conscious effort to look more ferocious or adult or simply the lack of opportunity to shave, is that <laughs> they, they become their iconic selves by growing beards. And did we get to how Grant gets in? I don't think we got how Grant gets in the Army. We have Lee pacing or not pacing, but give us a few seconds on how Grant, I mean, he's, he's yeah. as you pointed out a minute ago, he's not doing well. He's not doing working well. in a tanning factory that his father <coughs> owns with his younger brother as his boss. boss that's right. Could not have been fun. 
And I mean, the tanning factory was not fun on its no, own. It's it pretty yeah. hideous to the senses. How does he get into the army? How does he do it? And well, gets to be an officer right away. Yeah, the, it, it, it was very difficult for Grant to even get in the army. The, the famous story, which is true, is he was asked to lead a meeting in Galena, where he lived, simply because he was a West Pointer. And they looked around and said, well, I don't see any other West Pointers around, so you do it, Grant. And so they form a company. And Grant says, well, you know, I'm not going to take command of a company. I'm a West Pointer. I should have at least a regiment. So he goes with the company to Springfield, Illinois, uh, where they're uh, where they're going to you know organize this these regiments and he's ready to go home because nobody wants to take him and then finally the governor of Illinois a man named Yates sees Grant accidentally and says Grant would you take care of the paperwork for all of these soldiers that want to come in because you were in the army you were in the quartermaster corps you know a few things about the that sort of thing so Grant does it. The only reason that Grant gets any command, he gets command of the 21st Illinois Volunteer Regiment, is because the commander of that union is just a loser. And the, the, the regiment is just going amok. So they decide to bring in Grant as the commanding officer. Grant very quickly restores order, and the rest is history. So the early wars for each are not exactly... Glorious. No. Even Lee, who we assume, you know, is springs from Zeus's head as a god, but he has some he's not in charge. So let's take Grant up until sixty two anyway, John, up until his triumph at Shiloh. What is he doing exactly? Well what he's what Grant does very early in the war is and I think Harold's right, he's not very successful at all, but he understands very early in the war that you've got to do several things. You've got to take the Mississippi River, and you also have to be on the offensive. You can't just sit back. You can't do what Winfield Scott says, you know, anaconda plan, put people around on the river, and, and et cetera, and just wait them out. Well, it's not going to work because you can't wait them out. The Confederacy is just waiting to survive, and they will survive. So what Grant does, actually, is he attempts a couple of, of battles, one of which doesn't work out very well. But what Grant achieves, which is the amazing thing, is in early in February of 1862 at Forts Henry and Forts Donaldson. He wins important victories there, almost loses at Fort Donaldson, by the way, and, but the important thing I think about Grant is in his losses, he continues to learn. And he learns over time that in order to win this war, you've got to keep moving forward. And you're going to win the war in the West, not in the East. So he's aggressive from the beginning. He's aggressive from the beginning. Even though the, the engagements are not particularly not watershed for, moments that's and right. not all successful. Right. So Lee is sort of banished to Western Virginia at first. Yes. Um, not well, to sound consistently ageist, but I think he's known as Granny Lee. Granny uh, Lee Granny is one Lee. of the names he gets. Well, you look at <laughs> gray-haired, there he is in the picture. He's only 53, 54 years old, but prematurely gray, perhaps. Um, Western Virginia, West Virginia was not a state in 1861, 1862. It becomes a state late in 1862. 
But Western Virginia, being mountainous, slavery never really took full root there. This is the terms of the plantation culture. So its sentiment is very pro-union, which is why West Virginia eventually secedes from Virginia to become a state in the Union, uh, something Virginia didn't take too well. But early in the war, uh, Lee is assigned to defend Western Virginia, this kind of hostile area. Uh, and he has indifferent troops to do that. The terrain is very difficult. Uh, and he's not very good at it. And the reason he's not very good at it is his subordinates are absolutely terrible. He gives orders, and they decide to do something else. I mean, as a West Pointer, that isn't the way it worked. Uh, but he learns from this experience, too, that how you give your orders and to whom you give the orders determine whether those orders are going to be fulfilled. So it's a learning experience for him. Um, and then, uh, at several occasions, he orders the troops to dig in. Well, culturally, this is not satisfactory. The Civil War will become a war of, of spades, of trenches, as much as it is of bayonets. Uh, it, will, it will come to presage what happens in France and Flanders in 1915, 1916. Uh, but early on in 1861, the white troops that he commands look up, dig with a shovel. I don't do that. That's slave work. Uh, I'm not, I refuse. And so they, they called him the King of Spades. Mm-hmm. They called him Granny Lee. You know, he wouldn't go on the attack. All he wanted to do was dig in. But this was at a time when people really hadn't figured out this war yet. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Lee is also kind of figuring it out as he goes along. So early on in 61, first part of 62, there are some bumps. Maybe just to add one other thing, too. Uh, Craig made the comment about, uh, you know, Lee's really not all that old. Consider that Grant is only in his 30s. Mm-hmm. So they're both learning. But Grant, I mean, uh, Lee has much more experience than Grant does at the beginning. But Grant learns very quickly. Consider that when, he, when the war ends, he's only in his 40s. He's the youngest president of the United States up to that point. Really, I think until Kennedy. Maybe. Up until yeah. Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, that, right, 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 right. We... Um we should just spend a minute on this so we can move on to some head-to-head engagements. But um, each one gets to be commanding general for different, a different reason, death of someone else or failures of others. So quickly, how does Grant get to become commander of all the Union armies by March 1864? So I think in a, in a sentence, uh, what happens is Henry W. Halleck turns out to be not a good, efficient, commanding general. Tell, tell everybody who Halleck is. Uh, uh, yeah, Henry Halleck is, uh, is, the, is the man who I think is one of the leading figures of the, of the Civil War when it comes to logistics and preparing troops and dealing with politics. He happens also to be the subject of another book by John, which is yeah, why it's being touted. But somebody, you know, Lincoln said about Halleck, when somebody asked, how come you're friendly with Halleck? He said, I've got to be friendly with Halleck. He has no other friends. <laughs> and so, you know. So you he's do, sort of the bureaucrat he's in chief the bureaucrat of the army. And Grant is the, the guy that pushes forward, right. And how does, so how does Grant get to the top? Grant gets to the top because Lincoln decides that this is the guy that understands what war has become. The war has become constant forward movement. Previously in, in Virginia, when uh, Union troops lost McClellan or Burnside or whoever, 
they turn around and go back, not grant. He'd keep moving forward, keep moving forward, keep moving forward, and he'd simply wear down the other side. And Lincoln understood that, and Harold would know that better than anybody in his research. But Lincoln understood that, too, and he was a similar kind of man. But Grant wasn't – you mentioned he understood that the war was going to be won and lost or lost in the West. West. He wasn't crazy about the idea of coming east, no, right? No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, Sherman, his good buddy, told him, don't do it, Grant. Stay out here in the West. And, and Sherman is saying that even though he knows that if Grant goes east – Sherman will become the commander in the West. So he's confident. Pardon me? So Grant is confident that he'll oh, be yes, replaced by yeah. a and competent he, I think fellow. Grant understands the politics that, yes, the war is going to be won or lost in the, in the West, but you've got to put on a good show and you've got to defeat Robert E. Lee yeah. in the East. So how does, Granny, how does Lee go from Granny Lee to Mars Robert? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Let me just follow on, John, if I can, for just a second. This business of the East and the West, I think this is an important concept. We think of the Civil War as taking place in that 100-mile corridor between Washington and Mm -hmm. Richmond, and much of it did. A lot of blood was shed in there, crossing those rivers, the Rappahannock, the Rapidan, and so on. Um, But the big sweeping movements that actually ended up being strategically decisive in the war take place out West. And this is where Grant, you know, Talk about learning on the job. Mm. I mean, he, he commands, of course, at Shiloh, which is they lose the first day but win the second day. So they're beginning to turn this thing around. The Vicksburg campaign, one of the brilliant strategic campaigns of the war, is Grant's. And, of course, he relieves the, the siege of Chattanooga. So the successes out west are the stair steps, in a way, leading to this politically sensitive, okay. if less strategically decisive, job that he gets in 64. Robert E. Lee's path to command is, is a bit easier than that. He has this less than perfect success, lack of success in Western Virginia and then kind of morphs into becoming Jefferson Davis's military adjutant, military advisor. He's the one in the White House who talks to Jefferson Davis, also a West Point graduate, um, about what should be done next. So he's kind of in the Henry Halleck position when the commander of the field army, Joseph E. Johnston, is wounded. Now, it isn't a mortal wound. Johnston will recover. He'll play a role later in the war. But he can't command now. And somebody has to be on hand to take over command of the army outside Richmond. And Lee is right there. So Davis essentially turns to Lee and says, well, while your friend Joseph E. Johnston recovers from his wound, won't you take over the army? A few think this is going to be Oh, a temporary, you know, just a, he's going to, you know, fill in for a while. But what he does in the first month of his command is strike at this Union Army, pounds it for seven days in a row, the famous seven days campaign outside Richmond, pounds it so thoroughly that McClellan loses his nerve, retreats from Richmond, and it's perceived as a great Confederate victory. Now, it's a victory that comes at great cost. The Confederacy loses 20% of its manpower in those seven days. But it does save Richmond from being occupied in the first year of the war. And from that moment on, Lee is unassailable. He goes from victory to victory until, of course, Gettysburg, which I assume Harold will bring up later. (laughs) Well, I'm going to show the result just to to put a different picture up. Um, I think... We know about Gettysburg, and we've even done it here. And we know about Antietam, which we've done here. So Lee wins some 
battles, fights to a draw in some in the east, plagues the various unaggressive Union commanders that are uh, put before him, and then Grant comes east in 64, and then they go head to head. So as we look at what inevitably was the result, which is, or we know is the result, which is the surrender, which was portrayed by so many image makers in 1865, could, could their fighting in 64 and early 65 have gone any other way than it did? And by the, the reason I ask the question is, Grant is forever plagued with the um, charge that he sacrificed tens of thousands of men because he knew he had more men, that he was indeed a butcher, and that he won the only way he could win, whereas Lee was the superior strategist and military man uh, and under even circumstances would have easily triumphed. So why don't we do a quick assessment of generalship as they confront each other? And I only say quick because we've covered so much, but we have so much more to do. Yeah, Yeah, I think... um I always think that I've heard that, you know, that's that accusation is made. Grant was just a butcher. He just threw his men in. Lee was the great general and all the rest. It, it strikes me as a football fan to think in terms of, say, a great football team like my Buffalo Bills used to be. But that's <laughs> but in any case, to say that Buffalo should not have gone into the Super Bowl that year because they had such great players and the other teams didn't have as great players seems to me to be, doesn't make a great deal of sense. And in this case with, with Grant, Grant does use his army in a way that no one has used his army up to that point. No Union commander had been able to use the army in that same way, and Grant was. And it should be pointed out that if you look at, and what historians are doing now, they're looking not just at raw numbers, but they're looking at percentages. What percent of each troop size, Union, Confederate, was lost in Virginia? And actually, Lee has the worst record of anybody in the entire Civil War. In sacrificing troops. In sacrificing his troops. Uh, The argument can be made, for example, that that what Lee needed to do was to go on the defensive, keep the war going so the North would get sick of the war, and they'd say, okay, Confederacy, go away. But that's not the way Lee fought the war. Lee was a very aggressive commander, always on the attack, and he lost a huge number of men, as just in that seven days. We don't want Craig to be the defender of Lee, but do it from Lee's uh, vantage point and reputation. (laughs) Well, let me me use the Buffalo Bills uh, example that John brought up. And that is that if you're a team that's, uh, well, maybe like Navy playing Notre Dame, another rivalry we share. Um, If you're, you know, 30 pounds lighter per man and and you don't have a quarterback with a rocket arm and and you don't have a running back who's going to get 200 yards a game, you might try a double reverse pass instead of fullback up the middle. Uh, And that's what Lee did. When we look at the campaigns at Chancellorsville, for example, which is before their actually head-to-head, but it's very characteristic of Lee's management of troops. He faced an army twice as large as his own, and he did something no strategist would success. He divided his army in half, then divided one of those halves into half, and sent that quarter on a 25-mile flank march around to strike in the rear of the enemy army. I mean, it's, it's hugely risky. But Lee always felt the risk was essential 
because he was outmanned, he was outgunned, he was outsupplied, he was outfinanced by his foe, and therefore had to take risks. So if Lee looks like the dashing, rapier-wielding strategist as compared to Grant, who's got the cudgel in his hands, it's because they each dealt with the commands they had in a way that was appropriate to the resources available to them. I think the key element for each individual is temperament. Mm -hmm. Neither of them, to my knowledge, ever lost his temper, ever shouted at a subordinate, ever lost his nerve at a critical moment, that they could see the field. He had the coup d'oeil, as the French say, the eye that could see the entire picture. And, and, and they, they managed their armies in a way appropriate to the resources that they had available. I, I think they were both brilliant generals. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to show a few more of these images which, in which the scene grew in importance successively as artists dealt with it and numbers. Well, this is a pretty realistic view of the surrender scene, and, and this is perhaps the most realistic of all. It was commissioned by the man who owned the home in which the surrender took place, and he needed it to raise funds because when the Union Army was finished here, they took all of his furniture as souvenirs. Yeah. <laughs> souvenirs. Right. Souvenirs, that's right. The, the myth grew that the surrender had taken place outdoors in an apple orchard, Orange. and here's one bow to that, and here's the Cornwallis-type surrender with the entire Confederate and Union Army uh, arrayed before them. Um, I mean, Lee, Lee attain, I, my view is, just to throw this in, is that Lee attains um, somewhat um, iconic slash marble status in the North as a result of this rush of images that are intended to celebrate Grant. I mean, in a sense, Lee is ennobled as a, you know, giving in gracefully, preventing a guerrilla war, and uh, I think it helps his image, and it certainly elevates Grant to be in such splendid surroundings as his former better in uh, West Point and elsewhere. No, I think you're right. I think uh, uh, Grant's image uh, grows not only uh, because of what happens here, and it does happen here, as that. He, he was very magnanimous to, toward the uh, Confederates, and the Confederates and Robert E. Lee understood it. There was talk of, uh, of putting Robert E. Lee on trial, and, and Grant went to uh, President Johnson. Andrew Johnson said, I gave my word. So you, we can't do any of this. Right. I would break my, break my word. Uh, but I think, to add to what Harold said, I think the image of Robert E. Lee grows because there's a conscious effort in the late 1870s, 1880s, into the 1890s, and even into the 20th century, to make make Virginia the most important place in the war, the Confederate Army the most important unit, and Robert E. Lee the, the, the leading general. And so, as a result, we get the drunkard myth, we get the, the, the myth Good of point, the butcher, yeah. and so on and so on. In other words, in order to build up Lee, you've got to destroy... Uh, uh, Grant. Ulysses S. Grant, right. I just want you all to know, as I show these two photographs, um, it's a fascinating backstory to them. Both of these photographs were owned by Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, Mary Lincoln to be specific. Uh, we don't know how they came to own a photograph of Grant. Mary Lincoln was no admirer or fan of 
uh, a man she regarded as a butcher and thought was being rewarded too handsomely for after her husband died, and she wasn't. Robert Lincoln, who was on Grant's staff in the last months of the war, brought this photograph back to the White House after Appomattox and showed it to Abraham Lincoln, who supposedly said, and here we go with the mythification of Lee, it is a good face. It is a noble, noble face. I am glad the war is over at last. Um, and that's the picture that Lincoln had, and it came from, from Robert. Very odd. I just want to spend a little time with the wonderful questions that I've gotten, just so we can get to those, although we're not going to be able to tell the post-presidential story. Um, Craig, let's start with you. This is an interesting question. What turned out to be Lee's fatal flaw, if any? Well, I suppose what most Southerners would say is Lee's fatal flaw was he commanded an army half the size of his foe. Um, and, and, and Lee might have agreed with that. Um, if he had a fatal flaw in terms of the way he commanded, is that he believed that his soldiers were invincible. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the great weakness is the one that's often cited, of course, is the charge at, at Gettysburg, known as Pickett's Charge, although Pickett was only one of three divisions engaged in that charge, that, that he believed, despite the, the geographical circumstances, despite the, uh, the daunting uh, defensive lines of the Union Army, that his men had proved to him that they could do anything. They believed that, too, um, which is why when he asked them to do it, you know, you see that mile-long open field there with 100 guns on the other side went. We'd like you to march across that and attack the enemy. They were willing to do that and believe that they would succeed at the end. So if, if he had a fatal flaw, it was his belief that his soldiers could do anything. What about his strategic vision that mm-hmm. he, could, he should be on the offensive in the north when he could have held out in the south for much longer? It's almost as if he wished the war would it, climactically come to a close. It goes to the question of whether time is a Confederate ally, mm-hmm. as John suggested, and, and a lot of post-war uh, analysts have, have argued, uh, or, or not. Uh, the North was stronger industrially, militarily, financially, in terms of population, railroad, any index of measurement you can find, and that as long as the public in the North would sustain the Lincoln administration, and his being elect, re-elected in 1864 was decisive, the North would win that war. And so Lee said, time is not our ally. Time will overwhelm us like a steamroller unless we seize the moment. And that's why in 1862 he crossed the Potomac for the Antietam campaign, hoping that the shock of a Confederate victory in Union territory and the simultaneous suggestion that let's open negotiations, Britain's willing to arbitrate, let's end this bloodshed. And again, in the summer of 1863, when his army was at its peak, that some shocking event to to win this before we are overwhelmed uh, was the only way the South could win it. Now, that may not be correct, but I think that's the way Lee viewed it. But I'm, I'm just, just to add something, I think Sherman may have hit it right on the head when he said that the problem with Robert E. Lee was he was guarding the front porch while his mm-hmm. enemy burned his kitchen and bad, uh, bedrooms. Yeah, that's a great line. And actually, let me follow up on that. And in response to this question, another flaw may have been that he didn't see yeah, a yeah. continental war. He saw a war in Virginia. He was a soldier of Virginia, beginning to end. And when he had an officer that disappointed him, Mm -hmm. what did he do to that officer? 
He sent him out west because he wanted the war in Virginia to be the one that occupied all his time and attention, uh, and, and that was a flaw as well. Yeah. And to his credit, Grant saw joint operations and simultaneous action from, from the beginning. Here's an interesting question. Um, Grant mentioned as a slave owner, Lee certainly was. How did each regard the recruitment of African-American troops? Okay. Start with Grant on this. Grant, Grant believed with Lincoln that the Emancipation Proclamation should be enforced. And so he, he was out west. He was in Mississippi in, in the Vicksburg campaign and up and down the river. And he insisted that troops, black troops, be included in the Union Army. Uh, that's not what Sherman said. That's not what a lot of other people said. But Grant was a great believer that we should indeed use black troops. And he thought black troops could make the difference, as, as Lincoln did. By the way, one of the, um, um, to that point, one of the first experiences he had was a contingent of African Americans who had fled a plantation near Vicksburg mm-hmm. and come into Grant's lines. It was one of the first occasions when he was exposed to that and had to make a decision. Obviously, the, his orders were to accept them. But... Uh, they came from Jefferson Davis's own plantation. Own plantation. Yeah. And the original work of art that depicts their arrival is owned by the New York Historical Society. Uh-huh. So I think that's worth, <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Um, Lee, I mean, the, there is a myth that Robert Lee and Jefferson Davis loved the idea of recruiting African-Americans. And in fact, many believe that they were Confederate African-Americans, no matter how many times, how many times we and, and insist they weren't. Yeah. That is a myth, yeah. Um, Robert E. Lee, along with 99.4% of Americans, I made up the number, uh, of his generation, was a racist. He did not believe blacks could be effective soldiers. He did not believe blacks could be effective citizens. He did not believe blacks had any rights that, as Roger Tawney put it in the Dred Scott case, that any white man was bound to recognize. Um, But he was a pragmatist in terms of war. Mm -hmm. And so when in March of 1865, now note the date, he surrenders in April. This is in March of 1865. The the little rump Confederate Congress, only a handful of congressmen still in Virginia, passed a law authorizing the recruitment of black soldiers. That was the only time the Confederacy became involved with this thing. They raised two companies. They did not issue them any weapons. They drilled with broomsticks. But Lee was, will, and Lee was asked, would you accept black soldiers if they were, and yes, he would, because at that moment, anybody who could hold a place in the line and wield a weapon, he would accept into the arm. But he was not enthusiastic about right. it, nor was Jefferson Davis, nor were there regiments of black troops that fought for the Confederacy yeah. right. at all, ever. So I'm just going to, as we, this is the, uh, both men at the end of the war, Lee on his back porch in Richmond right after the war, uh, Grant in a more heroic pose. Here they are as older men, and there was one meeting in the White House, which is shrouded in mystery. Grant as president, Lee as president as well, but of a college, Washington College, which became Washington and Lee University. And here is a uh, uh, famous image of Grant on his wartime horse. Lee, Lee, oh, excuse me. Lee on his famous wartime horse, Traveler, um, copies of which were sold to raise... Oh, I shouldn't do that yet. Yeah. Well, I'm going to advance it quickly and then go back. To raise money for his tomb. It was funded by the sale of that print. 
Um, I want to end with this image, which is Grant in his last days in upstate New York, near Saratoga, uh, sitting on a rattan chair that still exists on that porch, editing or reading proof on his memoirs, which leads us to John and his new version of the book. This may be his most heroic act, don't you think? It was. He, um, he literally died a few days after he completed uh, writing his memoirs. And when you think about that, when you think about the whole thing, I think Ron Chernow said to me uh, fairly recently that he said, uh, Grant was suffering from cancer, throat cancer, and the only thing you could do in those days was to, was to water down some opium and all the rest. And yet he wrote pages upon pages upon pages. And if you look at them, you see there are very few changes. That's how good, uh, how good he was. Whereas most historians, we're lucky we get four or five pages in one day. So this is a, a really marvelous picture, and it indicates uh, a man who just is absolutely brave to the very end. And the reason he's so brave is he wants to make sure his beloved Julia will have some money left. Right, because he was ruined before He was that, ruined. By was the real Bernie Madoff of his time. Yes, right. Frederick right. Ward. And just as we end, um, I guess we'll end on a... I hate to end quoting Groucho Marx, but who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> and um, they may both be entombed rather lavishly, but you gentlemen have brought both of them back to life tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.